Welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. I'm your host, Dan Baptiste, and together we'll explore what it takes to excel in brand marketing at one of the most exciting and disruptive times in industry history. Welcome to Content Disrupted, bold takes on brand marketing. Our guest today is Abbas Arslan, the Senior Director of Marketing with Coca-Cola. Abbas has spent over 18 years with Coca-Cola, holding various roles across global markets, from Pakistan to North America. His experience is diverse, leading marketing for Fanta, heading global marketing research, and overseeing campaigns in the Middle East and North Africa. Today, we're going to see what Abbas has learned along the way and how each of us can get smarter based on his experience. Abbas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me here. I'm not sure if people are going to become smarter listening to me, but I'll just <laughs> try my best to share my experience. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. So you've had such an interesting, diverse career path so far. Coca-Cola, amazing global brand. How did you end up there? I think it happened by chance. Uh, I think it's like meeting your soulmate. There's no planning for it, but you end up being there. So uh, it happened. Just, you know, a friend of mine approached me once saying that, hey, you know what? Coca-Cola is looking to restart their business in Pakistan. Interestingly, so I come from Pakistan. That's my home country. And I was working at Procter & Gamble back in 2004 or five. And Coca-Cola had been out of country for the last maybe 10 years. And it was a Pepsi dominant market. And, you know, one day a friend of mine approached me saying, hey, you know what? We have heard that Coca-Cola is coming back and they're going to establish a marketing department. They're looking for brand managers and what is out in the market. And, you know, they're going to look for certain opportunities some of my friends were applying to Sunoa. I also took that opportunity and wanted to be part of the biggest brand in the world. I had a good interview, met a couple of nice people and, and got through. And as you have been now, it's been 18 years and been with Coke, been around the world with them, seen a lot of different things, met amazing people. And now here we are talking to each other. <laughs> it's truly incredible. And it's almost like you're made for this moment, Abbas. It's like you look at where we are as an industry within marketing. It's this convergence of data and creative all kind of forcing us to think and behave differently. Uh, but before we go all the way there, can you talk a little bit about your journey, um, starting out with math and statistics, moving into, to your point, one of the largest, most beloved brands in the world is focused on marketing and brand building and storytelling. Like, how did you make that transition from mathematics and statistics to big brand building? Right. So we all have this you know, right brain, left brain that we jostle with many times. I think some people are, I think, lucky this way. They know that they're on the creative side or on the mathematical side. I, for one, never was never able to figure it out and wanted to have to be in a, in a job where I could use both of my skill sets or both sides of my brain. So even though I've studied maths and stats as my core subjects, as my majors, but I was also the editor of the college magazine. I was in the debating society. I was in the dramatic club. So I had, I had both the sides. And I think I landing into marketing was just perhaps lucky for me because in marketing, you get to apply and experience both the sides of your brain. So that's how I think I came in. And then because I was simultaneously using both sides of my brain, I got to see good amount of success and was able to take the best of the experiences and develop myself along the way. Some of the critical experience that I had along the way since I, I joined marketing and first with Procter and then Coca-Cola, if I go through that, if I highlight, I think three of them, they were pivotal for my growth. The, the very first one was actually a relatively simple one, so to say, but pivotal for my own career. I was uh, working for Procter & Gamble and there was a brand called Herbal Essences, which the company had acquired. 
and it was rolling out globally. So the brand was positioned primarily on being naughty. And the reflection of naughtiness in Western culture was uh, was too naughty for most of the conservative cultures where I was also coming from. So my very first project was how to take a global brand, its global positioning, and localize it. I led that project at that time for what you can call as a conservative cluster of markets. So I was based in Pakistan, but you know the same was applicable to many of the Middle Eastern cultures, many of the Far Eastern cultures as well. So I led that project and was able to really take that element of naughtiness, but also bring it to a more conservative culture. So the brand essence of naughtiness remained, but it was relevant to the culture. And that helped me really understand this whole dynamic of global brand and localization. So when I moved over to Coca-Cola, I was able to use that also to take it to the next level. Using that as a almost like a seed, and I got lucky again in a way that there was a project that Coca-Cola was starting called Coke Studio, which was a music program. The whole idea was that how can you you know, what we say about music is that music unites and sports divide. So the idea was that how can you take music and unite people across social boundaries? So it could be the young and the old. It could be people from different states of the country. It could be people who believe in different things in the world, liberal, conservative, so on and so forth. So but music can unite them all. And I was able to use the similar kind of seeds of using two different sides of the coin and, and bringing it together. So Coke Studio became a local success firstly, but then seeing the power of music and the program, it was exported globally. So now it is the largest digital asset of the Coca-Cola company and is also used across, I believe, about more than 50 markets globally, including now US and many parts of Europe and Latin America as well. So that helped me evolve and, you know, move myself into a much larger field. And, And then lastly, I think I want to talk about this project, which is Perhaps one of the things that we may touch upon later on, which is about artificial intelligence and its use in creativity primarily. As I was saying, perhaps, you know, I want to use both sides of my brain. And one thing that Coca-Cola company has been, and I think any marketing company for that matter, is struggling with today, is that there is so much advertising and there's so much data. How do you capture that richness, which data can bring in, but still use the best of human imagination and create cuts for advertising? And because there is so much data, it's not really possible to bring it down into spreadsheets and still capture the richness. And that's where AI can come in and help with its new upgrades on understanding visualization, bringing themes from there and using those emotions to bring key learnings out. So with the power of science and AI, I was able to, you know, help with the help of the right team members, able to bring that science through, but also then capture that learning to help our creative partners, to provide them the learnings which are more inspirational uh, than explanatory. So that they could use that as a jumping off point to take the human imagination to the next level and create better advertising. So I guess, you know, along the way, I've been able to use my two sides of the brain, but always challenging myself to, you know, learn what's next, what can create the future. And luck has also favored uh, many times. And that's how we are here. Yeah, it's really interesting your talk about taking concepts and doing something different with them. You know, whether it's a brand execution that's globally and localizing it, have it look and feel different. Are there sort of ingredients there as you think about taking data and doing something different with it? Like, is it this audience centricity and looking at what you have to work with and how do we 
bridge the gaps or it's almost like there's a playbook here unless I'm <laughs> unless I'm reaching. But it looks like there's some parallels in how you've executed creatively based on either data as a foundation or global campaign as a foundation. Is that true? And what are the ingredients you look for when you're trying to think of adapting something for a local purpose? There's a method and then there's a room for madness as well. I uh, think both got to do work side by side because while there are many parallels and many similar similarities across different situations, then every situation is a little bit unique in its own sense as well. You can't platformize everything, though you can you know, take learnings from one experience to another and build on to them. Generally, how I like to approach different problems is firstly, the benefit of I think working with bigger brands and bigger companies is that something has worked in the past. And something has worked very well in the past for you, for these brands to be where they are. And I think it's important to understand what made it work. So going a little bit in the history and finding those big, big successful moments gives you a very good starting off point. So for example, you know, if I talk about Coca-Cola's advertising and how it becomes relevant, you'd always see the most successful Coca-Cola campaigns had this element of either bringing the world together in a moment of crisis, like Hilltop as an iconic commercial, or it could be about driving desirability of the product. Or like a pause that refreshes. So you have those, you know, key hooks which you got to understand first up. But then also the next step of this is that what is needed for the audience today. And that is something which is a little bit more difficult today than it was previously because now the fragmentation of the audience is so high. It's not just that, you know, we are pulled apart on two different sides of the spectrum, which we are. It doesn't need to be said that we are on the polar opposites as much as we are today than we ever were. But then also the number of factors that divide us is also the highest. And therefore, understanding the audiences is more difficult today than it was before. And I think that's where I think the element of science also comes in because that can help crystallize certain thoughts which are difficult to perceive otherwise. There's a really important and powerful point here. If we, if we think of the history of bringing people together Obviously, at this time, there's a kind of a powerful opportunity there, given all of the circumstances here and elsewhere. But you talked about the challenge of understanding the audience and data. Can you talk quickly about how you would do that today? So like if folks are fragmented, there's different audiences, there's a multitude of platforms, there's first party data, there's a lack of cookies. Where do you even start and what are some of the key data and insight sources that you find valuable? I think that's something that we're all, I think, struggling with today. I think for the right reason that you've identified, it's a messier place than it ever was. Our job is also known to bring some method to this and how can we simplify the problem and therefore understand it. I think there are a few points that I take to myself approaching different brand problems like this one. Firstly, it is to say in our segment, in our category, who are the heaviest users and why? Going back to my previous point of saying, you know, in the brand history, you can look for the highest successful moments. And that gives you an indication of why this brand works. I think similarly, who is the person who's the heaviest user and why? That really starts to give you a strong point. What we have also seen is consistently is that more people convert their behavior, not because of a message of a brand, but because they see somebody else choosing that brand. So for example, I may consider using nice headphones that you're wearing, not just because I would see advertising of that brand, but because I saw you using it and experiencing that. So therefore, identifying your heaviest users and appreciating the reasons why they are your heaviest users is, generally speaking, 
if you had a hundred users, another hundred would convert just because you appreciated your core users. This is what we have seen consistently. I think that's the simplest and the easiest way to move forward into our defining your audiences. Let me move to the second point, which is also what we have seen is that if your hardest critics soften up, that also creates another set of growth. It's not because you know those critics are going to change. It's because the noise that they were creating becomes lesser and therefore the barriers become lower. For example, if I were to be working on energy drinks, and energy drinks is a very interesting category because generally 50% of the population anywhere in the world is not just they're not users of energy drinks, they're completely deniers of this category. Now, what would happen is if you understand what are the core reasons, you know, certain barriers you will not be able to overcome. But there will be certain barriers, for example, perception of bad taste. You can clearly overcome that. If you, let's say, reduce that noise, then it opens up a huge chunk of people who will start to accept you. And that's where you would see, you know, the growth of electric vehicles. You will see, you know, so many other categories which are opening up because they have reduced the barrier. They've removed the barrier and it's coming through. So I think that's the big one. I was just going to say, that's a really interesting take. And my question coming out of that is, uh, do you see more lift from softening the critics or investing in your highest user population? It's different for different brands. Again, you know, it's the uniqueness of the situation. If I were to say, I think for a massive brand or a big brand, generally softening the barriers can work fairly well. And that's where, let's say, you know, there is so much advertising in beverages on low sugar or zero sugar because that's the biggest barrier. And that's been one of the biggest drivers in the last 10 years for this category. On the other hand, if you were relatively a smaller brand or a new brand, then talking to your core can be a big driver. So for example, within the beverage industry, brands like Prime or Liquid Death uh, that have come through uh, are primarily not because they're removing, they're removing a barrier, but, but perhaps they're talking to a core motivation. And they try to double that motivation like every year. That's their growth path. Got it. You mentioned a couple things. One is the fragmentation of audience and the impact that has on our decisions and how we connect with people. I think if we were to kind of oversimplify, we've both been doing this for uh, a couple of decades, right? And if you look at the changes over that time, I would say, you know, you look back at the start of our careers, it was largely people were organized. They were easy to find, right? And for the most part, data was, oh, it was there, but it was a little sketchy. Um, so it was all about the message. Like, how do you have some of these bigger, splashier brand campaigns or as a company or a brand, you focus on a message and distributing that message out? Kind of fast forward as folks fragmented, not only with where they, they are, but also their belief systems and things like that, that next wave of content and social and platforms and finding these like micro audiences all over the place required a very different model from a creativity standpoint. Instead of one big idea, you had to extend platforms and diversify those platforms, not only on the channels, but to your point, if you're a global company, how does that extend into markets and regions and all of that stuff? Today, you know, we start looking at the impact of AI and arguably a third kind of revolution potentially, but my logic falls apart, right? Because it's not, it doesn't follow the other two per se, because it's not about, you know, people going from consolidated to fragmented, but this is really kind of radically changing how we think about connection and creativity and marketing and all of these things. It, it hasn't manifested into a platform or, or communication style. 
But do you think we're on the cusp of something big, different, unique that will have the same level of impact as those other two? And, you know, what are the nuances that you see playing out given where we are and where we're going? Great point. Then we're all trying to understand. I can just share my own perspective, which perhaps is maybe I have this perspective today and after another experience it may change because we're all learning and growing. I think the foundations or the basics of marketing are perhaps not going to change. Let me give an example. Now, let's talk about pre-iPhone, pre-social media, and post it. Some of the mega brands continue to be mega brands today. Let me take an example of Nike. You know, it continues to be there, but it has the brand has evolved itself into the digital and social media spaces so very well. But if you look at it, you know, it has been successful in doing that is also because it perhaps made its core proposition even more laser-focused in the post-iPhone and post-social media era. That was the reason why it was able to successfully get into multiple platforms. I think going forward, what would change? I guess the two elements really in communication, content and media. How would you look at it? Right? Ultimately, we'll boil down to perhaps these two. Media is already very much driven by AI already. I mean, we can call it whatever you want, but you know, it's, it's a machine which is making a decision or a recommendation that we largely follow without changing it. It's already machine and not a man. Content is something that today is largely done by humans. And we see with the capability of generative AI today, already people have started to move. And as generative AI capability evolves more, you perhaps will end up in a space where fairly quickly you would be able to make it automated, for example, saying for a brand like Coca-Cola, for example, that, hey, you know, Dan is ordering a pizza on Grubhub. So when you write pizza, the ad pops up saying, hey, Dan, why not take this deal of your favorite pizza and pulls up, you know, what pizza you ordered before last time with a Coca-Cola and make it a very exciting evening with your family. This is the kind of application that AI will be able to do, which today is not possible for a human to do it in that time. So what would happen is, I think, with AI going forward is the capability will be to customize the messages at scale. But you'll be able to customize the message only if you know that what is your core proposition. Because if you let AI change the core proposition to every person, then the brands is higher risk from a perspective of just the incorrect tonality, incorrect messaging, so on and so forth. And also you'll AI will not be able to understand who you are about and will not be able to just deliver great creativity or even consistent creativity. So understanding your propositions, brand propositions, crystallizing them will become even more important. And then enabling, enabling your generative AI tools to work off the, that basis to customize execution at scale will perhaps be the big change. Yeah, I love that. I think our perspective within the content space largely follows that and we're preaching purpose, right? Like, so we've, for so long, we've created these these content hungry systems that require production, right? And if that production is happening at a channel and audience and geo basis, you quickly lose sight of purpose. And I think with AI, the opportunity is really exciting if we take a step back and say, why do we exist? What is our value prop? To whom does it matter? How do we scale that? And then when we think of some of the downstream productions as we have that captured, AI can actually make that come true. To your point, not only with ads, but our web presence, our social media, but it starts with original thought, right? And it starts with what our value prop is. And I had an example that absolutely killed me. I have two daughters, they're nine and 11. And they love like theater and script writing. 
And much to their friend's chagrin, they will spend in between like play dates, they'll spend time writing scripts and they'll write roles for each of their friends and their friends will come in and they're like, here, I got a role for you. And we wrote a script. And now they're sitting and acting out a play for like four hours and their friends are probably like, oh my God, can we not do this? But they love it. It's like what they live and breathe. A month ago, they put on a, a play for us and it was strange. I was like, that doesn't sound like you. Like, where did that come from? And they said, oh, we found this AI script generator. <laughs> and I was like, so you just like filled something in and hit a button and that was their answer. And a little piece of me died. And I said, man, just like giving away that creative thought and that experience, you kind of play that out, right? Like if we do that as leaders and we just kind of say, oh, wouldn't it be easier if we had a machine do this for us instead of that original thought? One year, three years, five years down the road, it's almost like cutting corners and the result of that is pretty dangerous. I don't know if you agree with that or if you have any thoughts on that dynamic as well. No, I think definitely there's this going to be, I think a uh... There's going to be this tension between what do humans do and what do machines do and this element about empathy versus efficiency, so to say. I think people are going to experiment on either side and ultimately, you know, try to kind of, you know, find their own sweet spots. Though we have examples today of AI writing music, especially I think if there is an element of, you know, it's end-to-end -end AI generated and you can hear it. And sometimes you feel it's not really pulling a string in your heart. But then also what we want to be aware of is that many, much of the creativity which is happening, the AI has been used in the back end. So there is human who has given the final touches, but you know, 80% was already given on a plate to the human. And I think those things are already happening. In the near term, perhaps I think there is this element of us wanting that human touch or human face. But for someone who is less than today, nine years old, when they're going to be 15, would they be even more open to just interacting with somebody who is non-human. Yeah, and you shared a study from Wharton on the power of creativity uh, and, and who's more creative, uh, humans or uh, GPT-4 in that example. What, what was your take on that? Like, what were the findings that, that were interesting? Interestingly, what they found is what I have also seen consistently in the studies that we run, that firstly, AI is definitely better in terms of fine-tuning and optimizing concepts. But then also... The Wharton study showed us that AI is on average better than humans on thinking differently as well. But the most different concepts or the most different ideas come from humans. At least this is where the data is today. Now, AI is evolving. Tomorrow, what happens? We don't know. I think the wisdom in, in that one is, and that's what I, I think is difficult for many of our human-based teams to understand and apply. You're good at a few things. You've got to realize this. Our school system, I think, is the, is the culprit there because our school system teaches us to be right. So there is no grade for being kind. There is no grade for being empathetic. There is a grade for being correct. So it's very difficult for people, when, especially when you come into the workforce also, you know, we came with the same mindset. Then now we are here, got to be correct today. We got to optimize. The thing is, AI is going to optimize better than you any day. We need to be bolder in our thinking. When we're going to be bold, we're going to be wrong as well. We don't, as leaders also, we don't give enough room for people to be wrong. So there is this conundrum that we are facing today. I think where the AI and human partnership can help the most is let humans think more boldly, give more options on the table, and then help AI optimize. So, you know, it's just like how you interact with a calculator. You don't say, hey, you know, a calculator doesn't take my job away if I multiply two big numbers. 
you let it do its job because you're thinking rapidly what how can i think through so similarly you're going to i think with you know use creativity also the same way we use science with the calculator to say let me think more creatively and finish the job to the end by using ai create rapid iterations for me then i think that's a happy balance that this might be <laughs> yeah i think that's such an interesting point about this concept of forcing right and wrong and i think if you look at part of the problem in general with society is everything has to be black or white right or wrong and that's not even in schools look at social media look at don't want to get political but look at any of the dynamics there's a right and a wrong answer and that's not reality right so if we think of our job is to explore and be creative and curious and challenge thinking if we knew the answer already then that exercise would be pointless and we wouldn't get to anything new i think that's fascinating and and you think of ai as a catalyst for that style of thinking is is really interesting before we wrap i'd love to kind of dig in you you recently launched a foundation and if i get this right you're you're helping really talented students and in, in mentoring and coaching them can you tell me a little bit about that and what motivated you to start that Right. Thank you so much for bringing this this one up. This is organization called Sarban Foundation. Sarban is a Persian word which basically means the person who leads the caravan from a difficulty in the desert to the destination. And the idea primarily behind this one is that there are a lot of students who come from very very difficult backgrounds, but they're talented and they worked hard to enter into the top medical and engineering programs across the world. and because suddenly you know they come from backgrounds where education was free and now medical engineering colleges you know the tuition fee and everything else and living in the hostel is a pretty high expense and that also creates not just financial pressure but also a psychological pressure on them to succeed in a way in a much more uh, competitive environment and onto their families as well so the idea of this organization is to pick up identify these students and help them through financially psychologically through those four or five years of their education as you think of the climate and how it's changing in the role of coaching and mentoring them given the current state of the world what's different in how you think about coaching and mentoring today versus let's say 5 or 10 years ago and and can we apply that to the the business leadership environment when you think of how students need to learn and adapt but also like parallels to ourselves like do we have to learn and adapt and what are we seeing from an environment standpoint that we have the power to change that you're seeing not only through your students but in corporate world as well for me personally working with students has been a great learning experience because today who is someone who's like in their 19 20 years old tomorrow they're going to be entering into the workforce so really this is the gen z core that we're talking about so this is an early window into into the mindset of of the younger generation i think the difference primarily between when i was in that life stage and what i see people who are in this life stage now is they're much more aware about the world and they're also much more aware about their own mental health and this dual one is they're much more aware about their own mental health and what's good for them but they also simultaneously want to be good and useful to the world around them so that's a tension that they generally face and they're much more open about that talking to them what i've figured out is that it's super important firstly to understand uh, what's going on in their mind and help them be okay with themselves first and that almost opens them up to all the other possibilities that there might be outside i was not even that open with my friends or my friends were not that open with me at that night time 
that these students are open with their mentors today. Uh, so I think that's a, a, that's a shift, that's a gift almost also, that mentors and coaches need to take so that they're able to make a difference in their lives. That's amazing. Yeah, I think it gets back to this concept of uh, vulnerability and it also reverts back to our conversation on right and wrong, right? Like if we go into the world bullheaded thinking we know all the answers versus curious and interested. And as this is unfolding, it's okay to test and, and be wrong and get back up and try something new. And the value in, in failure without having it deprecate your self-worth is, is really interesting. And I do think that's a gift not only for them, but also for us as we're thinking of how can we help you start reflecting on ourselves and saying, hey, are there things here that I didn't do, or I could do, or I could be doing for myself, not only you know, as we think about that dynamic. So thank you for investing in the youth. And I think that's a gift for not only them, but for all of us. That's really cool. As we wrap up here, I have what we call our, our speed round, a couple of questions. First thing that comes to mind here as we think. So as a marketer, what keeps you up at night? Not knowing how trends are going to disrupt tomorrow. <laughs> what keeps you going? Knowing that I'm making a positive difference for my family and the people around. What marketing term do you love? Brand positioning. Okay. And what marketing term do you hate? Alignment. Generally, it's a corporate word. <laughs> yeah. Can we just kill all the corporate words, please? And what's the best business book that you've read recently, let's say? I'm reading one these days called The Coming Wave. It's on AI and perhaps one of the best AI relevant books. Awesome. And uh, organic or paid? Got to do both, but if you can do organic, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, we're uh, we're right up at time here, but really appreciate it. I think hearing how you view the world with an empathetic lens and you know, how we think of these changes now as an accelerant for that work, finding our purpose for our organizations and ourselves and using technology to scale that is is a really cool lesson. So thank you very, very much. We appreciate you very, very much. And thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Content Disrupted, brought to you by Skyward. To stay up to date on the latest ideas and insights in brand building and content marketing, visit our website at skyward.com. That's S-K-Y-W-O-R-D.com. Join us for our next episode, where we'll continue to challenge marketing norms and inspire you with fresh strategies for growing business through brand storytelling.